The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. My name is Rosemary Dudenhofer. The scripture reading today is from Mark 9, verses 2 through 29. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first, to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody, and thanks uh, to Rosemary for uh, reading that text for us. You'll notice 
that we're trying to incorporate uh, some participation from the home environment just to, to remind us that we're not only the church gathered on Sundays, we're also the church scattered uh, because of COVID. And I know that because uh, vaccinations are underway and uh, uh, you know, more and more folks are developing antibodies from either that or having caught the virus at some point, uh, and people are slowly inching back into their churches, it's still really important to remind ourselves that there are more people out there than there are in here, and just to continue to pray uh, for people uh, who are affected, uh, continue to serve and protect those who are especially vulnerable. And uh, those of you who are in that uh, scattered category who are joining us today, uh, we welcome you, we regard you as we do every week as being just as much with us as if you were here in person. And we are so eager as you are to all get back together. But uh, uh, we, are, uh, we are in our series now on... Um, on Jesus, and we're, we're looking at, at the life of Jesus Christ through the lens of uh, the gospel according to Mark. Mark is a protege of the apostle Peter, and so in a sense, this is Peter's recollection, even more than it is Mark's, uh, of his eyewitness account and experience of walking with Christ. So I'd like to start uh, today uh, with this. It is a myth to say that all reputable science, uh, scientists reject faith in God and or all reputable theists reject faith in science. In fact, some of the strongest believers in God and some of the greatest scientists uh, have, have put the two together. Uh, if you live in Nashville, you, you, you've probably heard a phrase uh, in description of your city, Nashville is the Silicon Valley of healthcare. The longer I live here, the more I wonder why they don't call Silicon Valley the Nashville of technology, but uh, that's a conversation for another time. But there are plenty of scientists in our own church community because of the city that we live in, and I remember a conversation that I was having with one of them about a year, year and a half ago, and uh, he said, my science strengthens my faith in God, and my faith in God gives a context and an explanation for the mysteries and wonders of science. If you've ever studied biology, astronomy, physics, or any of the other sciences, you know that there is a significant difference between learning about the human body or the cosmos, the galaxies, through a textbook or through lectures. As soon as your education is taken to the next level where you're actually looking at organism, organisms through a microscope or you're looking at planetary you know, uh, you know, beings or, uh, through a telescope or uh, somebody walks you through the scans on an MRI, and, and there's this just next level of wonder that you experience as you go more deeply into the sciences. Well, what you've got here is three followers of Christ who've been steeped in Jewish traditions, steeped especially in the Old Testament, all of their lives, and they're getting a close-up, not just with creation, but with the Creator Himself. It's called the Transfiguration, 
And the God that they have studied all of their lives, they're discovering at the next level what it means to have that same God right in front of them. And so we're going to look at their experience and, and, and hopefully it will, it will lead us on some level into their experience of, of three questions and the answer to those questions. What just happened? What now? And what next? So, so let's start with the first one. What just happened? Remember, Mark's gospel is largely Peter's account, we can assume. What just happened to Peter as well as James and John is that they've been chosen for something very unique. It says in verse 2 that Jesus handpicked them. He took them, Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Captive audience, just the handful of them, nobody else. What a privilege, right? And it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. And it says also that Moses and Elijah, whom they'd only read about up to this point, also appeared and joined the gathering. So, so Moses represents the law of God, right? Uh, there's this account in Exodus where Moses goes up a mountain called Mount Sinai. He, he meets with God and God gives him the law and he comes down with the Ten Commandments. So Moses represents the law and then Elijah on another mountain, Mount Carmel, uh, defeated the prophets of Baal uh, through a miracle of God. All this is happening on mountains. And Elijah is sort of the prophet of the prophets. He's like the celebrity prophet to, to Jewish uh, uh, men like Peter, James, and John. And now they're on another mountain, Mount Tabor, with Jesus, with Moses, with Elijah, and then Peter, James, and John. And so so Peter gets tongue-tied. He gets a little bit starstruck. And like many starstruck people do, he just blurts out the first thing that comes into his brain. Uh, uh, Rabbi, uh, it's good that we're here. Let, let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, if you live in Nashville, if you've lived here for any amount of time, getting starstruck is a familiar experience. It's a city with concentration of celebrities, right? Uh, arts, entertainment, music industry, of course. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm married to somebody who's entirely unimpressed with celebrities. She wasn't impressed in New York. She's not impressed here when we see somebody that, that we recognize from a stage or from the TV screen or what have you. So there's this one year that we, we got invited to sit on the floor at the, the Country Music Awards. A friend of ours who's in the industry had a couple of tickets. Some friends canceled. He was trying to get rid of them at the last minute. And we're just like, we'll go. And, and so we're sitting among the award winners. And I'm saying, look, there's so-and-so. Look, there's so-and-so. There's so-and-so. Do you know who we're sitting right behind? And she's like, whatever. You know, and her, her phrase with, uh, with me, with our daughters, has always been, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And so then I, I get asked to, uh, uh, by one of our church members, who's an artist, to be the backstage chaplain at the Ryman for this event that he hosts every month, 
where he invites basically three or four other artists and they all do a mini set of their music and I get to meet them, have dinner with them, uh, you know, talk about God with, with, with artists and, you know, we'll come home and I'm like, Patty, do you believe, can you believe we got to have dinner with so-and-so or we got to meet so-and-so? Oh, isn't it great? And she looks at me, she says, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time, whoop-de-doo. And then we're in a restaurant, and uh, one of the people at our table who's in the music industry said, hey, look, there's John Prine over there. And, you know, John Prine is this, like, epic, legendary songwriter, right? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, John Prine, Patty, it's John Prine. Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And then John Bon Jovi comes in. And all of a sudden, my wife isn't thinking about people's pants anymore. It's John Bon Jovi. It's John Bon. Can you believe it? Shot to the heart. You're to blame. And, and I'm like, no, you're to blame for, for the shame that I feel over this thing because I don't think I'm even supposed to celebrate John Bon Jovi anymore. And I'm like, what's the difference, Patty? Everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time. She says, duh, it's John Bon Jovi. I guess everybody has their person or group of people. Imagine, though, that icons from history, not just people who are living today, but people who are long gone that you've been reading about, show up from the other world. Moses and Elijah, in their case. You were chosen for this. Peter, James, and John. But even more miraculous than that, you survived it. Verse 6, it says that Peter, James, and John are terrified. Why are they terrified? Because Jesus is transfigured. His clothes became radiant and intensely white. Now, in, in all the Jewish literature, this is how heavenly beings, this is how angels, this is how God is described. Being depicted in bright white, is so bright that you can't bleach anything that bright. And it says in verse 7 that then a cloud overshadowed them. And of course, this is a reference to what Peter, James, and John would have been familiar from the, with from the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory of God. It's the cloud that covered Mount Sinai when, when, when the law of God, when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. And Moses asks God to show him his face. I want to see your face. And God says, I can't. It would kill you. So what I'll do is I will hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will show you a little bit of my backside. And it was just that glimpse and that glimpse alone that, that caused Moses' face to shine in the same way that the moon shines when the sunbeams bounce off of it. Right? The moon has no light of its own. It, it, it's all derived from the sun in the same way that Moses had no light of his own. It was all derived from the glory of his creator and the lawgiver. Emphasizing the holiness gap. God, because his eyes are too pure to look on evil, cannot look on sin in the same way that, that sinners whose eyes are too dirty to look on holiness cannot look on holiness without being destroyed. And yet here they are. And, and Peter, all Peter can think of is, let's get three tents. Three tabernacles. And there is a statement of humility there. That, 
Asking for tabernacles, which is the Greek word here, is an acknowledgement that we need a sacrificial system. And we need a covering provided for us by God in order to survive this glorious moment. There's a reverence in Peter, but there's also a bit of an oversight and a bit of foolishness. They do survive this, but how? Here's the irony to this whole thing. They have been in the presence of God and beholding the face of God all along and have not died. They have not perished. You know, in the Old Testament, Manoah and his wife see God and he looks over his wife. He says, get ready to die because we've seen the Lord. Isaiah sees the Lord and he says, behold, yeah, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, when a high priest went into the most holy place, into the presence of God to sacrifice for the, an animal for the sins of the people, they tied a rope around his waist in case he died in the presence of God and they would pull him out. You look at the sun too long, you go blind. You look at God, you fall dead. That's the fabric of the universe. And yet these disciples, Peter, James, and John, have been invited into Jesus' inner ring and have been looking at his face, the face of God, this whole time, not recognizing that the only reason they have survived it is the covering that he provides from his own glory and the threat of it. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was shining, having been in the presence of God, and it says that all the people were terrified of Moses. But it's okay to look at, the, at Moses. Moses is like the moon. You can look at the moon. But don't dare look at the light source. Because if you do, you'll, you, you'll go blind or you might, in this case, get struck dead. But here's what the disciples missed. We've been looking at the face of God this whole time in the person of Jesus, and instead of getting struck dead, incrementally we're able to see better and better and better things as they really are. And God as he really is. And this is the next increment. These three men have no earthly idea how much protection they've already been given. You know, Moses, God, God said, Moses is my friend, but God could only show Moses his back. Jesus says, Peter, James, John, disciples, anyone who trusts in me, I've called you my friends. Behold my face. What just happened? You were chosen, and you survived it. That's the gospel. What now? That's the second question. A voice comes from heaven, verse 7. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah, they just disappear. They're gone. What's happening here? Well, I, I think Luke chapter 24 helps us. There's a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says that the risen Christ joins them on this walk. They don't recognize him in the same way that Peter and James and John don't really recognize who they're dealing with here. 
And it says in that passage in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses, beginning with the law, and all the prophets, including Elijah, Jesus interpreted to them all that the scriptures had to say concerning himself. Moses is not the point. Elijah is not the point. They are pointers. I am the point. They are not my peers. They are your peers. So get them off of their pedestal and keep me on mine. There's only room for two feet on the universe's pedestal, and it's the feet of Jesus. Moses, Elijah, Abraham, David, Isaac, Jacob, they all put their pants on one leg at a time. Get a selfie if you want, fine, big whoop, so what? But this is my son. Listen to him. There's only one hero. There's only one who has glory shining off of him. Only one. Two applications here. Calm down and stay low. Calm down. You know, like the rest of us, the first time Peter meets famous people that he's only read about up to this point, he trips nervously over his own words. But what Jesus is trying to get across here in the disappearance of Moses and Elijah is this. Just like you, Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah, they were chosen. They are not choice people. They are chosen people. You've forgotten that Moses, the, the giver of the law, had a speech impediment. He stuttered. You've forgotten that Moses had a temper that disqualified him from going into the promised land. You've forgotten that Elijah fell into depression and despair and almost into unbelief and had awful thoughts at times. In other words, God uses flawed, broken, raw material. You know, Tim Keller puts it this way. I, lo I love how he, he phrases this. He says, helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to access the presence of God. God brings his holiness, we bring our helplessness. That's how it starts. So stay low. You know, in the next section, a father pleads with Jesus for his son Interestingly, like Moses, his son had trouble with his speech. It says that there's a spirit that was making him mute, unable to speak. And, and the father says to Jesus, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they weren't able. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then the father says to Jesus, I believe, but please, sir, help my unbelief. I know I'm not what I should be. And it says that in that instant, Jesus healed the man's son. It is not the size of your faith that makes things happen in the kingdom of God. It is the size of your God. You can be in your best and strongest season of faith and it's almost impossible to discern what God might be up to and you can be in your weakest season of faith 
maybe even a, as small as a little mustard seed. And, and that's where you look back and you think that's when God came through in a visible way, almost in a transfigured sort of way. Elijah and Moses are the moon. Jesus is the sun. All that Elijah and Moses are alone by themselves are balls of dust. But under the light of the sun, they are anointed. And that is also the truth about Peter, James, and John. Stay low and God will make you big. The disciples had been able to cast out demons before. And so they're wondering, what, why didn't it work this time? And Jesus' answer, you know, I love how he rebukes in subtle ways instead of just going for the jugular. He says, oh, this kind, it only comes out by prayer. In other words, guys, you attempted a prayerless exorcism. Are you kidding me? You tried to fight the powers and do battle with the powers of, of hell and, and of the devil himself without asking for God's help? What on earth? Of course you weren't able to contend with this one. Because this one can only be contended with by praying people. Because you are not the sun. You are the moon. You are a ball of dust. And a ball of dust cannot and will not shine without the light of the sun. And you will have no power without the glory of God radiating off of your face. Even the backside of God, that's all you need. But I give you my face and you've stopped turning to me. You're enamored with religious celebrities. Instead, Okay, American Christians, shall, should we not take American celebrities off of their pedestals after the last couple of weeks and keep them off the pedestals? Moses and Elijah are your peers. Jesus is your glory. Moses and Elijah are not Jesus' peers. Never have been. And yet they are his friends. Not through merit, but through grace. Think about this. Some of the greatest preachers that there have ever been, some of the greatest Christian leaders, they got more prayerful, not less. The more skilled they became. Martin Luther, well into his ministry, as the Protestant Reformation was gaining traction, as Luther by himself stood up against a corrupt church, Luther would later say, I have got so much to accomplish today, I must spend three hours in prayer at least before I get started. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, thought of by many to be the greatest English-speaking preacher of all time. To the end of his ministry, as he approached the pulpit to preach, every single time he was struck he was awestruck, almost a, a, a moment like the transfiguration of Jesus, where he's just awestruck that he has been asked to handle this. 
And, and he, he limps almost up to the stage and up to his pulpit, praying the prayer, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Somebody was observing my notes. This is a sermon for me. Uh, if you, you're ever curious what I have up here. Um, this is a method that was taught by my very first mentor out of seminary named Jimmy Dodd. I've been using this sermon outline method uh, ever since I preached my very first sermon out of seminary. Jimmy Dodd is one of the best preachers I've ever known. Jimmy Dodd stutters like Moses did, except when he preaches. Moses stuttered, except when he preached. You know, there are three, I, I was a pretty good student, but there are three classes I, I never did well in. One was driver's ed. And my wife would tell you I'm still failing driver's ed. The other was public speaking, which terrified me. And the other was creative writing. Those are the two things I do. This, truly, my fear of getting in front of, uh, in front of people was the one thing that almost kept me out of ministry. Elijah was depressed. Moses had a stutter and a temper. And look at what God has done with their lives. So what next? Jesus says to them, you know, I, I want you to pray, but I also want you to change the way you see everything, especially power. You want me to become a successful politician. You want me to dominate the world and you want to be in my shadow when I do that. And I am going to dominate the world, but not in the way that you would imagine. You ever wonder why after Jesus does a, a marvelous, miraculous thing, a miracle, he always seems to be turning to his disciples and saying, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone what you just saw. As if to say, this is, only, this is for your eyes only. And in retrospect, we can look back and say, yeah, because these guys, the things that they would later go through, they needed stories to look back on to give them courage to move forward. Eyewitness kinds of things. But this is just for you right now. My favorite study Bible, the ESV study Bible, that's my favorite study Bible. I would recommend that you get one too. Terrific notes. It entertains the question, why does Jesus keep telling his disciples not to tell people all the marvelous things that he does? And the ESV study Bible says he is avoiding a popular movement that would make him into a freedom fighter, a celebrity, and that would block his path to suffering. I mean, you can imagine the disciples. Jesus, just think about the book deals you can get. Maybe they could even turn your life into a movie. You, you could win a Grammy sometime. You could be famous. You could, you could rule the world. You could be president. Nothing wrong with those things. A lot of people of faith have done wonderful things with those kinds of positions, but not Jesus. It's not his calling. His calling is to suffer. You know, the disciples are like, yeah, rising from the dead, that sounds great, but being dead? No, not you, Lord. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to that sort of thinking. Verse 12, the Son of Man 
will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. All they've experienced thus far is miracles and, and winning. Now he's setting his face like a flint toward Jerusalem where he's going to die. The rest of it's going to get really hard. You think that the longer you get into your Christian life, the easier things get? No, it's the opposite. Jesus says, the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. He's, of course, referring to John the Baptist, his cousin, who was beheaded by power for speaking truth to power by Herod Antipas. The transfiguration here is a turning point. You know, again, up to now, it's all been miracles and victory and healings, all displays to authenticate Jesus' claim about himself that he is God. And oh yes, you will see me shine again, but don't forget this moment, because you're going to need to suffer and experience contempt and die as well before you get to see glory again in his fullness. I will shine again in my second coming, in the new heaven and the new earth, in what they call the holy city of God, I will shine. You better believe it will be the brightest thing you've ever seen. And you will be able to abide it because I will cover you as I already am covering you. Revelation 21 talks about the future in this way. There will be no need of the sun or the moon anymore for the glory of God will illuminate the city of God and the Lamb, Jesus, will be its light. But first, death. There will be no light until first you pass through the darkness. There will be no everlasting life until you pass through the valley of the shadow of death. There will be no Easter until you pass through Good Friday. There will be no, there will be no crown until you pass through the cross and take up your own cross daily and follow me. What the disciples want is a freedom fighter to enable them to deny their neighbor, take up their comforts, and follow their dreams. And Jesus says, hell no. Deny yourself. Take up a cross. Follow me.